just a reminder for those of you who weren't here last time I was up here, uh, we've, we've switched gears in our study in the book of Proverbs. We are doing uh, topical uh, studies, various categories in Proverbs, just so we can get uh, an understanding, not exhaustively of how uh, God addresses or teaches us his wisdom in various areas of life, um, but just to have a little survey and get a taste of his wisdom in various areas. And last time we, we looked at the subject of God's sovereignty, uh, the extent of his sovereignty, the implications it has for us and our thinking and our living, and that was called The Purpose of the Lord Will Stand, that sermon. And, and this morning, we're going to look at, the pro, uh, at Proverbs that focus on the heart of man. So, this is called The Heart of Man. This is going to be our subject this morning. And when Scripture speaks of the heart, it's uh, most of the time, not referring to the actual internal organ, but to the inner person, to the inner person, the mind, the mind. The Bible teaches that a man's thoughts, his reasoning, his emotions, his desires, his plans, his will to act all spring from his heart. And the choices we make, the words we speak, the actions we take, our planning that we develop and the goals we pursue, they're all driven by the inclinations of our heart. And according to Proverbs 4.23, the thoughts and behavior of us, our thoughts and behavior, all flow from our hearts, which is why we must watch over our hearts with all diligence. And although our hearts are impacted by all sorts of external influences, we nonetheless ultimately act according to our own wills, which are fueled by our own personal desires, which originate in our hearts. We act according to our own will, fueled by our own desires, which originate in our heart. So who you are, what you do, and how you live your life in relation to God is determined by the spiritual condition and inclinations of your heart. The heart is very important to God. Very important to God. According to the Lord Jesus, the greatest and most important commandment of God is that we love God with all our heart and soul and mind, our inner being. And we also read in Scripture that the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So in Proverbs... We've already read that we should incline our heart to true understanding, incline our heart to understanding, to God's wisdom, and that we should receive God's wisdom and store it up in our hearts, and that we should trust in the Lord with all our heart. So this morning, we will consider some additional wisdom God has for us on this subject, the heart of man. And the first verse we're going to look at these will be selected texts, is chapter 15, verse 11, which says this, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. Now Sheol, if you, if you remember, we, we've, we've talked about this term, it refers to the realm of the dead. 
It's the underworld. It's the, it's the place beyond the grave where the souls of the dead go. Abaddon is a synonym of Sheol. It's another, another name of this place. It, too, refers to the realm of the dead. And Sheol and Abaddon, it's basically a transliteration of the Hebrew word. I mean, it's, the Hebrew word is Abaddon and Sheol. So this Hebrew word Abaddon actually means destruction. It means destruction. So as the proper place name of the underworld, it, it pictures the underworld as a place of destruction. That is, the place that God consigns the unrighteous dead for judgment. Now, from, from man's perspective, just as high as heaven is, heaven in our minds and our thinking, it's the highest place imaginable, so Sheol and Abaddon, the underworld, the place of destruction, well, that's the lowest place imaginable. And this helps us understand what's being communicated in, in this proverb here. If, if God, who is seated on His throne in heaven, high above everything in creation, if He's seated on His throne in heaven, plainly sees and is fully aware of all that is in these places, which are furthest from His glorious presence, then how much more does He see and know all that is in our hearts? So it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. We could also think of it this way. If, if, the, if the place of judgment is in God's plain sight, how much more is the object of His judgment? which is the heart of man. So if the place of judgment he oversees and is fully aware of and it's plain in his sight, how much more the very thing that he judges, which is the heart of man. And this means that God sees all that is within you. Although our, our heart is ultimately a mystery to everyone else, isn't it? It's ultimately a mystery to those around us. It is an open book before God. So we can, we can put on a performance we can outwardly conduct ourselves before people so that they think well of us, but they're not the ones to whom we are ultimately accountable to. God is the one who's our judge and the one to whom we must give an account. And none of our sin, none of the thoughts and intentions of our heart is hidden from His sight. We cannot conceal any evil that is within our hearts. God not only knows all that we do, but He knows all that we desire to do. He knows if we truly trust Him and love Him and fear Him. He knows. God knows your heart. And think about what we read in James, right? He knows what genuine faith is and who has it. Man can put on a performance and just make professions. And we can even tell by somebody's works whether or not there seems to be a genuine faith from that person. I mean, if there's no works matching it, then, then it's a dead faith. And God knows perfectly well those who truly fear Him and love Him and trust Him. So God knows your heart. And then in Proverbs, we're going to look at two now, and they're basically the same statement. The first one is chapter 16, verse 2. Which is, all of the ways of, of man 
are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. And again, when you see the mind, the spirit, the heart, they're speaking of the same thing, the inner person. And then chapter 21, verse 2, and we can camp out on this one. It's pretty much restating 16, verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. He weighs the heart. So they're basically identical statements. They both present a contrast between God's moral assessment of man and man's moral assessment of himself. The first half of these Proverbs express the idea that people are prone to justifying themselves and their actions and their way of life. That's just like a default reaction. Justified, oh yeah, what I did was right. I'm good. Don't judge me. People tend to have a high moral opinion of themselves, do they not? If you were to ask a random person on the street if that person believes that they're going to heaven when they die, and why they believe that, assuming that they believe in heaven, more often than not, they would say it's because they're a good person. Well, I'm a good person. The problem with this thinking, though, is that it doesn't line up with reality. No one, according to the Word of God, no one is inherently good. No one is inherently righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who does not sin. That's what Scripture says. Therefore, for anyone to think that their ways are pure and right is delusional. It's delusional. It's to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It's Like the Apostle John said in 1 John, he said, if we say we have no sin, then what? We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So what seems to be suggested in the first half of these Proverbs is that we are prone to ignoring and rationalizing our sins so that we look better in our own eyes than we actually are. Now notice the second half of these Proverbs. Here's the reality check. But the Lord weighs the spirit, but the Lord weighs the heart. God's judgment is comprehensive. It's based on all the facts. He evaluates not just our actions, but also the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And he assesses our motives. This means that his evaluation of our supposed good deeds extends beyond the deeds themselves to our thoughts behind those deeds. Did they spring from a desire to honor the Lord? Were they done out of genuine love and concern for someone else? Or were the motives entirely self-centered and self-serving? To say that God weighs the heart means that He, literally means that He examines it. He examines it carefully. He weighs it. He measures it with perfect precision so that his assessment of it is 100% accurate. His judgment is right and true. And these Proverbs are certainly a warning against the sin of self-righteousness, the delusion of self-righteousness. They warn against that. One commentator says this. He says, If man were his own judge, who would be condemned? It's like, 
you know, again, we could ask our opinion of what we think of so-and-so and so-and-so, these bad people over here, but what about you? Well, um, I'm a good person. I don't do that. We're pretty lenient when it comes to ourselves. Who would be condemned? He confesses himself indeed to be a sinner. Perhaps he does. But what his sins are, he knows not. Probably only venial. And abundantly compensated by his fancied virtues. Often has the self-deceiver passed into eternity under a credible profession. But how does he stand before God? He never acted from principle. We say he never acted from genuine faith and love. External form without a sanctified heart is a baseless religion, end quote. And here's what Jesus had to say about self-righteousness. He said this to the self-righteous religious leaders of his day, the religious people. In Matthew 23, 27, and 28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness so you also outwardly appear righteous to others. You appear righteous to others. But within, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He could see straight through and into their hearts. God the Son. An example of the Pharisees should serve as a warning and a rebuke to us if at any point we start becoming more focused on participating in religious activities than on inclining our hearts to the Lord. And again, not to say that these, these external acts of obedience, the things that we're called to do, are not important. They are. But if our focus is just on that, we're not really seeking to do it from the heart. If we're not seeking to incline our hearts to the Lord, then these are meaningless. It's superficial. So if God's indeed constantly examining our hearts, then it would certainly be good for us to be examining ourselves and truly striving to align our wills with His will and our desires with His desires. He cares about your heart. So should you. And as we strive to do the outward things He's called us to do, which are for our own sanctification and for the good of others, we should consider as best as we can our, our motives and intentions. As best as we can, we should consider that. For example, I could look to my effort to obey the Lord's commands. I could, I could be loving and serving my wife out of, a, uh, out of obedience to the Lord, but I should ask, am I doing it out of a desire to please the Lord and to benefit my wife physically and spiritually or because I want to get something from her in return? And you could talk about loving and serving anybody. Is it an act of service? Is it really ultimately to get something from them? Or it truly, is it truly an act of love that seeks their highest good and a desire to please the Lord? Or am I, am I serving in the church out of a desire to please the Lord and build up the body of Christ? Am I offering my time, my talents, my treasure, my skills and abilities, and my offering myself in service to the church because I really desire to please the Lord and I'm, I'm seeking to build up the body of Christ? Or is it about me? Am I 
doing it because I think it'll give me a good reputation or I'm somehow trying to compensate for some area in my life that's lacking as far as obedience is concerned. However, we could say that because the heart's important to God, we should be concerned with what's in our heart. We should examine ourselves, sure. But while it's good for us to do that, we must be realistic and keep in mind that any self-examination we do will be, at best, incomplete and imperfect, as with any human evaluation. So any, any assessment you're going to do of your own heart, it's going to be clouded by your ever-present indwelling sin. Any assessment we do, it'll be clouded by our ever-present indwelling sin, and it'll be limited by our inability to know and discern every single thought and intention of our own hearts. Even we can't really accurately assess what's going on in here. Scripture says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately sick. Who can understand it? Because of the sinfulness of our own hearts, we should have a godly skepticism. A godly skepticism towards what we perceive to be our own intentions and motives. You examine yourself and say, mm, yeah, my motives are pure. I, I think. Because we can e- easily deceive ourselves. The heart's deceitful. We can deceive ourselves. Have you ever justified proceeding with decisions that are in direct conflict with the clear teaching of God's Word simply because you prayed about it and had a sense of peace in your heart about it? How often have you heard that reasoning? I can do this. I prayed about it. I, I, feel, I feel at peace with my decision. But, brother, your, your decision is actually in conflict with the clear teaching of Scripture. When you have a conflict with someone, whether it be a spouse, a relative, friend, coworker, are you quick to conclude that it's completely their fault and that you did nothing to contribute to the problem? I am innocent. This guy, it's his problem. He's, he's got a sin problem, and he offended me, and I, you know, I'm, I'm innocent. Or do you, do you actually think, like, what did I do? Am, am I guilty of sin? Did I offend? Is there offense from me? Did I offend him in some way? So because our self-assessment will always be imperfect and often will be inaccurate, well, we should pray to God for help like David did. What did he pray? Well, in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The Apostle Paul said, when responding to those who called into question the integrity of his apostolic ministry, we said, for I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. By the way, Paul, when he's speaking of the Lord judging him, he's speaking of the judgment of believers when Christ will evaluate our earthly lives and reward us according to our level of faithfulness and of doing things of eternal value in this life. But even here, with this judgment, which will end with some form of commendation, Paul says that the Lord, and even in this judgment, will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So this emphasizes the fact 
that when it comes to the judgments of God, the thoughts and intentions of the heart are always thoroughly examined. They are weighed every time. So if you're wise, if you're wise, then you are someone who accepts what the Word of God says concerning your own heart. You believe that. You're someone who believes and confesses that you are a sinner and that your heart is sinful and deceitful. But that you are trusting in the Lord and depending on His grace and mercy as you strive to honor and serve Him. I mean, we stand in grace. Even though we've been pardoned of our sins, we've been forgiven, we still recognize the fact that we continue in grace. We are not inherently all of a sudden made pure in and of ourselves and no longer sin, do we? Sin still remains, but we're standing in grace. Now Proverbs 20 verse 9 says this, Who can say, it's just a question, Who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. Obviously rhetorical, right? Because all are under sin. Solomon Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. (laughs) Case closed. The expected answer is, from this proverb, who, who can say I have made my heart pure and I'm clean from my sin? Expected answer, no one. Right? No one. Because no man can cleanse his own heart of sin and make himself pure before God. Hence our need for a Savior. See, even in Proverbs and the Book of Wisdom, it is, it is helping us see the reality of sin. And the reality that we can do nothing to save ourselves and make ourselves right before God, hence our need for His grace, hence our need for a Savior. This is why Christ had to come. This is why He stepped down from His throne room in heaven and was born into this world as a man so that He might offer up His sinless life as a ransom for many. And we say that all are under sin. Well, yes, the whole human race, but Christ came into the world. He is the one man, the God-man, who is without sin. So he could offer himself up as a perfect substitute for us, bearing our sins in his body on the cross. That's what he did. Where the wrath of God was due, that was due to us for our sins was poured out on him, and he died in our place. He was our substitute. But on the third day, God raised him from the dead unto glory, vindicating him as the righteous one, the Son of God. And all who believe and trust in him are forgiven by God for their sins, for the sins that come from their own heart. And more than that, through faith in Christ, people are justified. They are declared righteous by God. God declares them righteous. Not because they have an inherent righteousness of their own. He doesn't, he doesn't say, you believe my son and now I actually recognize you do have inherent righteousness. No. He says, I declare you righteous because I am crediting you with the righteousness of my son. Jesus who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And The one who has faith in Jesus has been cleansed from sin by God. See, no man can 
cleanse himself and make his heart pure. But the one who has faith in Christ has been cleansed from sin by God. And he is pure in the eyes of God because he has been washed by the blood of Christ and is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So when God sees the Christian, he sees the righteousness of his son that's been credited to him. He doesn't say, you as a human being on your own now have this inherent righteousness. There's no more sin in you. No, but I'm looking at you and knowing that the sin that is in you and all the sin that you've committed and will commit, all of that has been born in the body of my son who died on the cross under my wrath to pay for that, the penalty for that sin. And I've credited you because of your faith in him with his righteousness, and now I see you as pure. And one day you will be completely pure at the resurrection. Now back to our proverb. 20 verse 9, who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. Well, guess what? Who can, who can say that? Rhetorical question should be no one. But I'll tell you who, who perhaps does say that. It's the self-righteous fool. Only the one who's dead in his sins and trespasses and blinded by pride and puffed up with arrogance can say this. Only the one who believes that he's inherently good, only the one who does not believe that God is as holy and just as he claims to be. So wisdom calls for us to continually recognize our own sinfulness. That's wise thinking. That is wisdom. Recognize your own sinfulness so that you might maintain a spirit of humility before the Lord. Recognize your own sinfulness so that you might trust in the Lord and not in yourself. <coughs> that you might trust in Him with all your heart and not in yourself. Continue recognizing your own sinfulness so that you might be mindful of your own susceptibility to temptation. You see, this is wisdom. And continually recognize your own sinfulness so that you might guard yourself against the very sin that dwells within you. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance. So if we're to walk in wisdom, then we must not only humbly recognize the sinfulness of our own hearts, but we must also deal with our sin in a manner that is consistent with fearing the Lord. And we see that in Proverbs 28.13 and 14. Some of you all might know this. This is a... At least 28.13 is a popular verse for people to memorize. It says this. By the way, this is the only verse in the book of Proverbs that deals with the issue, the subject of forgiveness. It's very interesting. If you're on a computer and do a search in a Bible, you type in forgiveness in Proverbs or mercy. Oh, you find a few, but really this is the only one that deals with the idea of forgiveness says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So when we sin against God, we, we transgress his commands, which he's given to us in his word. And when we do that, we'll be tempted to cover it up. But after all we've seen, considering this morning uh, these, the issue of the heart, we can immediately see that that would be a fool's errand because nothing can be hidden from him. How foolish it is to think that I can bury it 
The wise and righteous way to deal with our sin is not to cover it up and ignore it and pretend that it isn't there, but to confess it and forsake it. And this confession and repentance, right? This is necessary in order for us to obtain God's mercy in the event that we do sin against Him. And for the Christian, even though we've obtained His ultimate mercy, I want to clarify, we've obtained His ultimate mercy in Christ. We will not be eternally condemned and punished for our sins. But guess what? As one who is in Christ, you now qualify to receive the corrective discipline of God. As a father will discipline his child. It will not go well for us if we harden our hearts and cling to the sin that offends God's holy character and wars against our souls. It won't go well for us, will it? You think about a stubborn, rebellious child. It's not going to go well for them if they persist in this obstinate rebellion against their parents' authority. Ah, but if they, if they confess that and they turn from that obstinance and rebelliousness, well, the parent's going to have some compassion. Show them mercy. It won't go well for us if we ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit and of our own conscience. It it won't go well with us if we deflect the light of God's Word when it exposes our ungodliness. It won't go well for us if we refuse to listen to those who lovingly confront us and call us to repentance. The moment our hearts stop trembling before the Lord is when they start to harden. It's one or the other. There's not like a middle ground. Your heart either fears the Lord, it either trembles before the Lord, or it begins to harden. So what's wisdom? Well, wisdom for you is that continue in the fear of the Lord. Blessed is the one who trembles before Him always. The pattern of confession and repentance of sin is the mark of, it's the mark of humility and wisdom that springs from a heart that does fear the Lord. The heart that fears the Lord will confess and repent of sin, will be humble to do that. And we can look at the example of David's confession in Psalm 51 and just just a portion of this. This is a psalm of David. It says, When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. No light sin there. No light transgression. Adultery. Murder. Nathan the prophet had called him out. After about a year of concealing it, David confessed to God, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He's not in denial. And who's he relying on to be made right? The mercy, God's mercy to wash him, to make him clean. Create in me, verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You see what his focus is on? Verse 16, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Now they had their sacrificial system. When you have sin, you offer the sin offering. The sacrifice. 
to make atonement, to be restored in this relationship that you have with God. So he's not saying that, that that's totally unimportant. Well, that's the law of God. It was important. But he's saying that is not the most important thing to God. Otherwise, he would just bring it and, okay, you got me. Here's my sacrifice. Burn it. And, and I'm good, right? Because God commanded that's how I do it. No. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are, at their core, a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And then if we, if we look at another great example in the psalm, Psalm 32, this is then a song of David, perhaps reflecting on this point in his life. It's Psalm 32, and we'll just read the first five verses of it. It's, it's a masculine of David, it, meaning it's an insightful song. It's intended to instruct. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. But notice, who covered it? It's not blessed is the one who covers his own sin. The one who covers his own sin will not prosper. But the one who confesses and forsakes it finds mercy. And guess what? God is the one who covers the sin. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He who conceals his sins doesn't prosper. There's a, there's a ruinous effect upon not just the mind, but even the body when one conceals and tries to cover and not deal with their sin before God. Verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. So when, when the Nathan the prophet comes and he calls him out, he exposes it. David at that point didn't deny it. He didn't try to cover it up there. He came to the Lord and openly confessed it and asked for mercy. So I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What mercy. Now as you, as you seek to live out your life in the fear of the Lord, trusting in Him with all your heart, humbly confessing, and forsaking sin and striving to please God in every way, keep this final wisdom saying in mind that we're going to look at as an encouragement to stay the course and remain faithful to the Lord. Here's your encouragement to stay the course. Proverbs 23, 17 and 18, the last one we will look at. 23, 17, let not your heart envy sinners. You're going to guard that heart, right? Let it not envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. You know, it may seem that many people who do not fear the Lord and whose ways are right in their own eyes experience plenty of prosperity in life and success and comfort in this life, despite their persistent ungodly lifestyles. But don't let your heart envy them. This short life in this fallen world is the best that it's ever going to be for them. It's the best they'll ever experience. And after it, the eternal judgment of God awaits them. What's there to envy in that? But you, Christian, 
You have a glorious future beyond this present earthly life. You are a citizen of the coming kingdom of God. You will be raised to life. You will be glorified. You will reign with Christ for a thousand years, and then you will continue to dwell in the presence of God forever and ever in a new and glorious creation. What a future you have. What a hope that you have. What Solomon encourages the people of God with in Proverbs, in this proverb right here, to not envy sinners, it really is the same wisdom that his father David expressed in Psalm 37. You can see where a lot of the wisdom Solomon's teaching in Proverbs has come from his father, who loved the Lord and feared the Lord and trusted in the Lord with all his heart. In Psalm 37, David had written just a, a sampling of what he had written in this great psalm on this instruction to not envy sinners. He says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Verse 7, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. 37 and 38, Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. So in conclusion, just by looking at a handful of these Proverbs, what we have seen is that wisdom tells us that our hearts are exposed before God, that He sees and assesses every thought and intention of our hearts, and that our, our, our ways are not pure because our hearts are not pure, and we cannot make them pure. However, for those who fear the Lord and confess and forsake their sins, there's mercy, there's forgiveness, there's cleansing, there's hope, and there's a future. Blessed are you if you continue in the fear of the Lord. Incline your hearts to Him. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank You for Your wisdom, for shining the light of Your Word into our lives, and we know that Lord, apart from you, we would be in darkness. We would be lost and without hope in this world. But you've rescued us. You've given us understanding. You've given us life in Jesus Christ. And, and now, Lord, we pray that you help us grow in your wisdom. Especially concerning the things we talked about this morning, that we, we would never be trusting in ourselves. We would never presume upon your grace, but that we would continue to fear you to tremble before you, to know that you are holy and that we still have these hearts that are, are sinful. We have sin dwelling within us and these desires that, that are not pleasing in your sight. And we pray, Lord, that our response, our pattern and our practice would be to not harden our hearts, but to continue to fear you. And that we would, when we sin, confess it and forsake it knowing that we will, we will receive mercy from you. And Father, I pray for anyone here who, who doesn't know you, who doesn't know your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the only Savior, who is Lord over all, and through whom no one 
can have, apart from him, no one can have a relationship with you. No one can be forgiven. No one can be right in your eyes. Lord, I pray for those who, who don't know Jesus Christ, that they would not harden their hearts this morning, that they would fear you. They would, they would come before you, Lord, in, in humility and confess the very sin that condemns them and, and turn from it and open their arms to receive the grace and mercy that is in Jesus Christ. Pray for their salvation, Lord. Help us to be a church, Lord, that, that demonstrates hearts that fear you church that cares about holiness, godliness, Lord, Christ-likeness, and that we would strive to love and serve one another in this body from hearts that desire to please you, hearts that truly care about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Remind us that you continue to see our thoughts and intentions, that we might deal with the thing that is very important to you, our very hearts. We ask for your help in all these things. May your spirit empower and equip us. Amen.